everyone, and welcome back to What China Wants. My name is Stuart Patterson, and I'm here with uh, Sam Olson, as always. We're very pleased to be joined today by George Magnus, who is an old friend of the podcast, to discuss uh, China's economy and its outlook. Uh, for those who don't know George, he is the author of a tremendous book, Red Flags, uh, which looks at the economy that Xi Jinping inherited and what the challenges are that the economy faces. He's also an associate of the China Center at Oxford University and a fellow at the School of Oriental and African Studies in London. So welcome, George, and thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Stuart. Good to be back. Well, look, maybe we can just kick off, George, with the obvious. We have China's third quarter GDP data, the headline number, I think, surprised people to the upside, actually, at uh, 3.9% for real growth year on year. I was wondering, do you believe this number? And how do you interpret it and uh, the breakdown of the, the numbers behind it? Well, I, I thought you were going to ask me about why wasn't it published on schedule? <laughs> obviously, there was a little cottage industry kind of cropped up during the week of the 20th Party Congress to try to understand why so many economic statistics had been suspended. However, um, as you say, quite correctly, I mean, it did come out perhaps just a few days late. And I, I think it was a little bit surprising. I mean, I'm kind of used to the idea that actually many of these kind of high-level economic uh, series can be subject to manipulation. I think the number, I think the year-over-year numbers, I think it was 3.9, was looked a little bit on the high side to me. There could have been some fairly typical kind of problems surrounding the estimation of the deflator, which I, I don't want to get into the sort of the uh, you know dirty weeds about that. It's not an uncommon phenomenon. There were also some inconsistencies, I thought, really, between some of the data on which the GDP numbers were based and some of the more higher frequency numbers which are published on economic activity. You know, we're not talking about massive differences in estimation here, but perhaps of the order of I don't know, somewhere between a half and 1% on the year-over-year rate. I think the key thing really, though, my takeaway really was that whatever the the quirkiness of the specifics of the numbers, it looks as though seasonally adjusted, there was quite a an important kind of bounce back in the third quarter from the second quarter when obviously the Shanghai and other lockdowns had depressed economic activity. So I think that sort of directional change in the economy was probably correct as far as it goes. But by the same token, if you kind of break down as far as we can do the kind of monthly series, then a lot of that bounce back took place in July and August and September was rather weaker again, suggesting that the carryover effect onto the fourth quarter might be weaker as well, particularly since we know that zero COVID is going to be with us for some time yet. Anyway, so bottom line really is it may have been kind of a, a funny number, not quite consistent with what we think we understand that's going on in the economy, got the direction of change right in the quarter, but maybe it's exaggerating it a little bit. Yeah, I mean, just sort of chip in on the the sort of longer term uh, sort of time series for GDP is that if we believe the 2020 and 2021 numbers, as well as these, we're looking at a Chinese economy that is potentially, on official data, um, sort of in real terms, 13 to 14% larger 
than it was pre-COVID. Um, that breaks down as, you know, the, the spectacular but perhaps mythical 2.2% growth in 2020, uh, followed by the very sharp rebound of 8% plus in 2021. And, and I'm just wondering, I mean, to my mind, at least, that doesn't really gel with what people like to call the lived experiences of your average Chinese citizen, that their economy is now 14, 15% larger than it was in pre-COVID times. Yeah, I mean, this obviously speaks to a number of different interesting issues. I mean, one is the perennial issue that I think people raise about whether the GDP numbers or the estimate of GDP in China actually is systemically overcooked. That has an A and a B. I mean, the A in that uh, kind of statement is that the numbers are just exaggerated and they you know, don't add up to, for example, the summation of the 32 provinces' economic statistics. And the B is that it may be kind of an artificial number anyway, in the sense that, you know, for us and for actually most of the world, GDP is a sort of afterthought. I mean, we add it up once we know how much businesses spent, how much consumers spent, how much the government spent, exports and imports and so on. Very, very typical kind of national income accounting concept. Whereas in China, you start off with a GDP target and you hit it. I mean, regardless, you have to hit it because the party says it has to be hit. Obviously, it's not being hit in 2022, and it was abandoned in the COVID year 2020. But generally speaking, I mean, that's kind of what happens, even though they've abandoned the setting of targets for uh, the five-year plan, at least explicitly. I mean, there are implicit targets as well. But explicitly, they uh, have reserved the right, so to speak, to, to set targets on an annual basis in the work uh, report at the end of the year and at the National People's Congress. Uh, and the idea, basically, is you start off with a, a GDP target, and if you can't hit it, then obviously local governments step in to spend money and create output or demand in order to, to hit the target. So nobody really knows actually how much. Well, of course, we're now beginning to learn a lot, I would say. Perhaps that's a better way of putting it. We're beginning to learn a lot about how much uncommercial GDP actually enters into the overall GDP numbers. So I think that this idea that, you know, GDP is, you know, it's $17 trillion on official numbers, you know, it's X percent, as you said, larger than it was pre-COVID. I mean, it, it, it isn't borne out by kind of touchy-feely analysis, and it's probably not quite right. It is the number that we have to work with, though, so that's what it is. So, George, the RMB has been under pressure for a while now as the, the dollar's been uh, so strong all year. I mean, it's been strong against other currencies as well. It's strong against the Japanese yen and the South Korean won. But what are your thoughts about how low it could go? And, and also, is it a deliberate policy to weaken the exchange rate or is this all being driven by capital flight? Well, I think the weakening of the RMB this year, I mean, obviously, Everybody understands that most currencies have gone down against the US dollar because the US dollar has been incredibly strong, Fed tightening, et cetera, et cetera. I don't think that's the only thing that's been driving the RMB. Earlier in the year, it may well have been because it was falling against the US dollar, but it was pretty stable or indeed actually even slightly higher against the basket which the People's Bank of China maintains, CFE ETS index. But of late, actually, that looks slightly different. So it's been dropping against the US dollar. I think we were up at about 720 something or other recently, but also against the basket of currencies as well. And that's been accompanied by a kind of a quirky thing that 
a number of FX analysts have spotted, which is that the fix which the People's Bank of China announces typically has led the movement of the currency, whereas in recent weeks, the fix actually has been following it down against the US dollar. So what's been going on? I mean, it's opaque, obviously. It looks as though there has been higher capital flight, unrecorded capital transactions out of the country this year than than would be estimated from the balance of payment statistics. Certainly earlier this year, we know that there was quite a lot of portfolio capital leaving China, particularly bonds, uh, but also equities. That may not have been the case as heavily during the summer and early autumn, but I suspect that it may have resumed, and certainly in the wake of the 20th Party Congress. So I don't think that the People's Bank of China is, I mean, obviously, it's not an independent central bank. It takes its orders from the State Council and so on. I don't think there's a deliberate policy of currency devaluation going on. It would be material if that were the case. And because most of the big names in economics and finance in China are going to change over the next several months, including at the People's Bank of China, it will be of interest to know which individuals are going to fill the senior positions and whether that might have any bearing on currency policy. But I suspect that For the most part, I mean, there is still probably some downside in the currency related both to the, you know, the dollar's own performance, which is functionally related to monetary policy in Washington, but also to the kind of the, the, I would say hemorrhage is perhaps a strong word, but but the the drip feed of of capital outflow as well, or unrecorded capital outflow. We may be getting a little bit closer to at least an interim bottom. I mean, the RMB has been through, you know, a number of different two to three year cycles in the last 12, 15 years. And I think it's probably about 12 to 15 months into this kind of down cycle. So it may, it may have a little bit further to go, may get up to 750, 760. But I suspect it probably, for the least for the time being, given what we know, I don't think it's going to go much further. That's interesting, George. Thank you for that. I mean, you mentioned the Congress there, and obviously that is a, a party show rather than a governmental show. And there is a wafer thin separation between the two. And, and we'll have to wait for some of the technocratic appointments to, to take place. But from your reading of the Congress with regards to the economy, did you see anything that led you to believe that economic growth as an objective in its own right might start to climb the to-do list? Or was your interpretation very much that social harmony, equality, socialist principles were still very much at the forefront of uh, Xi Jinping's agenda and that therefore the outlet for the sort of private sector remains sort of somewhat clouded? How, how did you read it? Well, you won't be surprised if I you know, kind of give you a slightly nuanced response. I don't think it's the case that they don't think the economy is important. Of course they do. I mean, they being, you know, the party. But I think uh, most people have come away from this reading the runes that there's been a, a shift in emphasis, an important shift in emphasis towards security and away from the economy. So Xi Jinping's speech to the Congress, the opening speech on the first Sunday, was peppered with large number of references to security, military, struggle, and similar kind of words, particularly with a very strong focus on external relations, 
threats. I mean, obviously, the United States is never mentioned by name, but threats from outside and, you know, we're people trying to contain us and this kind of thing. So this is, I think, came out very strongly as the sort of the main kind of message, really, of the Congress. Inevitably, there are lots of references to the economy as well, to scientific and technological development, to common prosperity, to quality of of life, which is part of the sort of central contradiction which the party changed in 2017. So, yeah, I mean, I think the, the economy is important, but I think the politics are more important. And the external, I would say, not necessarily always military, because sometimes it's, it's not always military, but certainly external relations, threats, strategy seem to be taking pride of place. I think what worried me also, what worried probably a lot of financial markets as well, subsequently, to pick up on a theme that you mentioned, you talked about the technocratic positions. I think what worries me about this is that pretty much all of the people that were nominated to the Central Committee and the Politburo Standing Committee to take the place of people who were who were either stepping down because of age limits or who were, you know, in the out crowd, they're all Xi Jinping loyalists. There are no technocrats among them to speak of. And almost a dozen people from Li Keqiang to Liu He to Yi Gang at the central bank and perhaps about seven or eight other people who have been in the forefront of economic policy making, financial decision making and regulation for the last years, uh, I mean, will all be gone and will be replaced by much more you know, sycophantic supporters of Xi Jinping, certainly not technocrats or necessarily experienced in economics and finance and central government. So. Does it make a difference? I mean, you could argue that even the good guys, quote unquote, who are stepping down, you know, couldn't really get their way if they'd wanted to with Xi Jinping because he's the fat controller, you know, <laughs> right in the middle and nobody does to uh, object or to oppose him. And maybe, you know, surrounding himself with yes men just means that bad decisions get implemented much more effectively. So we'll see. I think it's it, it's a retrograde step. And I think that the fact that tech stocks sold off pretty heavily the fact that the market generally, stock market has been pretty poor, the fact that the currency has been weak since the Congress, I mean, are indicative of the fact that I think that the markets, you know, didn't really like what they're sensing from what they gleaned to be possibly the outlook or more subdued outlook from the Congress. I mean, we don't know anything about policy and we won't typically until late this year with the work report and then maybe not even until the NPC, National People's Congress in March of 2023. But anyway, I mean, it's not auspicious, let's put it that way. Yeah, I mean, George, it's interesting that you mentioned the capital market reaction, because obviously, in the very short term, markets in China sold off very aggressively. But but that was just a, in a way, an, a reacceleration of a trend that has been in place for uh, a couple of years now. Really, I suppose you could argue it started with the property stocks and the three red lines policy and then spread to tech and, and what have you. And clearly, interest rate differentials that had favoured the bond market have disappeared as US monetary policy has tightened and the US yield curve has somewhat normalised. Technocratic excellence in, in government was always one of the sort of core planks that China bulls would fall back on as sort of 
you know, well, we might not like the, the sort of authoritarian state or the lack of rule of law, but at least we know that policymakers are technocratic and they will, you know, because of the lack of an electoral cycle, they can take a longer term view and they can tackle problems uh, without sort of ideological bias, as it were. All that seems to have been sort of somewhat shot to pieces, doesn't it, in the sense that China has lots of long-term problems which simply haven't been tackled, like the malinvestment in infrastructure, the degree to which they sat and did nothing on the housing bubble for 10 years until arguably it was sort of too late to have a soft landing. And now we actually have the personnel being removed, you know, and being replaced with uh, uh, perhaps slightly more ideologically driven people. So I suppose foreign participation in Chinese mainland capital markets has always been fairly limited and is now apparently reversing. That's the current trend. But there must be a ramification for Hong Kong, isn't there, here, as a entrepot for trade, although a far less important one for trade because China's infrastructure along the rest of the coast is so much better, but for capital. And, you know, does capital have a role, private foreign capital have a role to play in Xi Jinping's third term? And if not, or if it's a a very much subordinated one, what does that mean for Hong Kong? Well, I think that for the time being, at least, notwithstanding all of the things that we've spoken about and, and some that we haven't really touched on yet, which impinge on the kind of new governance regime. I say new governance. Well, it is new. I mean, it's been kind of accumulating, really, since Xi Jinping came to power. So not new anymore. But I mean, obviously, the governance regime has taken a very sharp Leninist turn, you know, both politically and in terms of economic policy as well. So I don't think that's going to change. I mean, that's a feature now, and and quite brazenly so, and openly so. And it's something which I think um, you're right to point out that, you know, that a lot of companies, both inside China and uh, doing business with China from the outside, which were prepared to put up with many CCP idiosyncrasies over a long period of time because of the revenues, the profits, growth of market, ease of doing business, or easier terms of doing business and so on. I mean, that's clearly in the mix at the moment, isn't it? Look at the business surveys, for example, produced by the EU Chamber of Commerce and American Chamber of Commerce. It's quite clear that companies are scratching their heads now, wondering about about what to do with their business in China and what to do with future investment in China. So I don't think that's going to change. I think that's really kind of a straw, very perhaps more than a straw in the wind at this juncture. Having said all of that, I mean, it's quite clear that for the moment, at least, the Chinese government is very welcoming of foreign capital coming into China, particularly into the financial sector, as far as I'm aware, at least. Many of the big banks and asset managers in US, UK and elsewhere are still, you know, viewed as agencies which can actually bring know-how, capital, dollars, expertise into those areas in the Chinese financial system where um, they are perhaps somewhat lacking in competitive ability. So asset management, uh, investment banking, that kind of thing, uh, particularly if you know China's obviously got a big issue ahead of them in terms of intermediating savings for the purposes of increasing you know, pension and other 
kind of social benefits and so on in the future. These are things which obviously foreign financial companies can actually help them do. To that extent, I think that Hong Kong's, I mean, I'm not an expert on Hong Kong, Hong Kong's financial role as a conduit for capital into China, obviously it's conduit for capital out of China as well, which is uh, not quite as, as welcome, but as a its role as a conduit of capital into China and for Chinese companies also in particular to use uh, the financial system in Hong Kong as a sort of a, a real-time kind of lab, so to speak, for financial innovation and for financial practice. I mean, I don't really see that changing at the moment. I don't think any. I don't think it's anybody's interest, uh, certainly not in the Chinese government's interest, to to switch that. Although, uh, having said that, um, I mean, it's quite clear. You know, Hong Kong's kind of path, I think, is to become just another of the many cities in the Greater Bay Area. Shenzhen can certainly manage and function and do a lot of the things that probably Hong Kong uh, could do, along with Shanghai, of course, as well. So I, I don't know. I mean, I my kind of personal view about sort of long term outlook for Hong Kong is that you know different from anybody else's. You know, it's Hong Kong is going to become just another Chinese city, and it won't have any kind of special appeal. But for the time being, I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think it's it certainly continues to fulfil a function as long as you know human capital in Hong Kong is prepared to to stay there. Obviously, the dynamics of demography in Hong Kong are changing all the time. I mean, if expats are leaving and people are not arriving in large numbers anymore and uh, mainlanders are beginning to kind of take over positions of influence and, and positions of seniority in Hong Kong firms, then obviously there's a kind of a natural process of change that's going on anyway. But yeah, I mean, I, I think that, um, I mean, finance still sticks out a little bit like a sore thumb as we think about sort of Sino-Western or Sino relations with liberal capitalist economies, I mean, um, finance is still a bit special and, and treated a little bit differently as well. Yeah, indeed. I mean, it'd be interesting to see whether the trials and tribulations of the semiconductor industry um, at some point are repeated in finance. But George, um, thank you very much indeed for, for joining us. It's always a great pleasure to to have you on. And we'll be back next week with more What China Wants. Thank you very much. Thank you.